Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the MTG Goldfish Podcast, episode 23. Pretty sure I got that right, so I think it's going to be an ongoing joke from now on. Uh, as always, I'm here with you, Chaz, and I have Richard with me. What's up, Richard? Hey, everyone. And Seth, or as you all know him as Saffron Olive. What's up, Seth? What's up, everybody? And it's going to be an interesting cast, and we have a guest with us today. Uh, so Sawyer Blatz, a moto grinder, tournament grinder, winner of a PTQ, and is going to be an attendee at PT Origins. Um, and he just most recently wrote uh, an article on the metery, a kind of controversial, quote-unquote, uh, MTG finance piece. So what's up, Sawyer? Good to have you on the cast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So um, we're just going to get the article out of the way here in a few moments, but the agenda here for this episode is, um, so we're going to talk uh, MTG finance and we're going to talk about uh, in particular buyouts and Sawyer's article. And, you know, it's good to have Sawyer's uh, perspective on this stuff because he is an 18 year old who grinds magic tournaments and uh, likes to be part of the competitive side of the game. So I think having that perspective is going to, you know, generate some really good conversation on the cast. Uh, then we're going to talk about GP Charlotte. And um, again, uh, I know you, you watched that Sawyer, so having your uh, input on that. And we're going to wrap it up with some fish mail. So let's start with the, the article. So why don't you tell us a little bit of what some of the forethought uh, of, and just explain the article to us and our listeners uh, on the metery. Yeah, so... Again, I usually write about, like, a lot of, like, the standard metagame and things like that. So this was, like, my first time dipping my toes into anything financially based. But the main, the main thing I was talking about with the, the article, it's called The Buyout Crisis, is uh, my perspective as someone who's grinding tournaments and seeing all these cards, things like Kitchen Sinks, Olivia, Oblivion Stone, Eternal Witness, all of these cards uh, double or even triple in price a lot of the times just overnight. And... I kind of just discussing how how I think wizards can go about approaching this problem, um, and I, I guess to ask the community, do you think there's a problem? I think it's good that you know you took your stance and that you wrote the article. So um, I know you were telling me off cast that uh, you didn't realize it would be so controversial. Right. Yeah. It's. It... Again, this is like my, one of the most popular articles I've written. It's, it's gotten more views than the last like eight of mine combined. And so I, I had no idea it was going to blow up like it did. And I do want to say it, what, this article was not meant as like an attack on the finance community. Um, I myself have specced on cards before, and I, I think it is a good part of the game. Like I think a lot of people enjoy the financial aspect, and it's, I don't want it to be something like Yu-Gi-Oh! where the cards have no value. Um, because I think, I think a lot of people enjoy that aspect, but yeah. I, I think it's, it's walking a fine line and trying to find out, you know, how much can we encourage, you know, those, those kids that don't have the money, but also still want to be in the competitive scene. How do we get them into the game while also keeping the people who want to, uh, enjoy the financial aspect? Yeah. Seth, I know you wanted to talk about this and, and Richard as well. So I'll open it. I'll, I'll open the floor to you two, uh, to ask Sawyer about this article. Seth? Uh, uh, yeah, well, one of the things I was wondering about, you mentioned uh, the different types of buyouts uh, and how some cards are sort of organically bought out um, and other cards are more of a speculative buyout. And I was wondering how you, like, determine, like, how do you personally determine which is which? Like, which is a good buyout, which is a bad buyout? Yeah, so to me, it, when I see a card, like, 
like Oblivion Stone is one of the examples I use in my article. It's, it's a card that had a breakout performance um, at the Invitational, and it, it went from being $15 to $50 in one night. And after that, then went back down to 30 and it's, it's hitting about 28 now. And when I see a card go from 15 to 50 and then spike down again, to me, that screams buyout. Um, because it, it, it's clear to me that the demand isn't actually there for the card to be $50. And when we see a card uh, like Snapcaster Mage, which it ha- it's had a few like jumps in its time, but has largely stayed the price that it jumped to, I think that's like actual demand for a card. Um, and I, th- I think it's pretty clear to everyone that Snapcaster should be holding the price that it is. Like it's, it, it has clearly proved itself in modern to be a staple but yeah, I think I think the big determination is when a card starts to fall down. But if the card just falls back down, is there really a problem there? I mean, you said it. Uh, Oblivion Stone went up to fifty; it's already back down to twenty-eight. Like, what's uh, what's the problem if the card just automatically goes back down to where it was before? Well, yeah, the problem is that it it doesn't actually go down to where it began at, and like it, we see with Oblivion Stone, it's in the end it's only jumped about thirteen dollars, but it's it's never going to hit 15 again. That card is going to now forever in people's minds be, oh, well, it's worth $50. I mean, it hit that. And so people are thinking they're lucky to have gotten it at a lower price. And so people, when they see a card spike and then, oh, well, now it's only $30. When, when that price memory of it being $50 and everybody panicking that, oh, crap, I need to pick these up now is it, it, it completely changes the dynamic of how people are thinking about the card. Instead of being outraged that it's now $15 more, they're like, well, it's cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of feels like it's on sale, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Richard, did you want to chime in? Yeah, so, you know, in general, I, I agree with Sawyer. Um, I'm more of a player, so anything I do MTG Finance related is to mitigate the effects of MTG Finance. You know, the whole reason I, I created Goldfish in the first place was, you know, I wanted to buy a card and I don't want to see its value evaporated overnight, right? Yeah. I don't want to buy a $500 deck to have it be worth $200 tomorrow. So I need to know when, you know, standard rotates. I need to know when modern PCQ season is, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so in that respect, you know, I, spikes and stuff kind of annoy me. Like, I don't want to see them happen. Like, even if they're natural or unnatural, it doesn't really matter, like, if I want a deck tomorrow, I don't want to see it double in price or half in price. So my question to Sawyer is, you said the collectible aspect of it was okay, but is it really okay? Would you rather have it be a game like, uh, I don't know, like say Hearthstone, where all the cards have a fixed price, right? Like you're never limited, or, you know, past, you know, an initial investment, you're never limited in your card pool. You can afford all the cards that are all worth the same price. It doesn't matter what deck's doing well, you can always get it. Would you rather have the game be like that so that you can always play whatever the tier one deck is in Magic without uh, having a concern for budget? Um, I, I think that's definitely something interesting to consider. I think the biggest problem I have with completely cutting the financial aspect out of a game is, okay, now how many people are we alienating that do enjoy playing that side of it? Um, and I, I think there are people, like there are clearly people that are in this game just to collect the cards, just to try to make money on cards. And losing that aspect entirely would frighten me a little bit, not because that's something I actively participate in, but because I know a lot of people that enjoy that part of the game. And I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to the idea that 
well, the way I the way I play the game is the only way to play the game, or the way I play the game is the correct way to play the game. And so I feel like by doing something like that, I'm cutting the other people out of of the way they 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 like playing the game. And even if that way is completely different than how how I play it, where I'm going to tournaments every weekend and I'm grinding moto and things like that, they to to them that's okay. Well, what card can I spec on next? And so it it's again it's weird because. While I personally would love if every card was the same price and I could just be playing Abzan Control if I really wanted to or could switch decks on, in a heartbeat, I don't think that's realistic to, to want, if that makes sense. Cool. I like the article, Sawyer, and I, I think it was a, um, a bold jump into uh, <laughs> this, this aspect of the game. And, you know, I, I agree and I, I truly believe what you said that um, you didn't really want to attack anyone in this community. And, and that's honestly exactly why I wanted to have you on because I, I enjoy having uh, a dissenting opinion because mm -hmm. there's a lot of different people that play the game for a lot of different reasons. And one of those reasons is the, you know, the financial part. Now, is that the larger part of the community in terms of the, the large MTG community in the whole? I don't think so. I think it's a very small aspect. At the same time, that very small aspect of the community can play a very powerful role and dictate what the rest of the community is going to do. Star City Games being a part of that community, although uh, makes you know a lot of people like myself and a few other writers and Seth and, and Richard, very small time. I mean, we don't have that kind of money or those deep pockets like they do, but you know they, they do things on their own terms. So... The other the, the aspect here is that there's been a financial aspect to this game as long as the game has been in existence. The problem is, well, not that really a problem. It's not a problem. The problem about prices, rather, is that the community is a lot larger than it used to be back in, you know, 95, 2000. The, the, the community just keeps growing. So when there's a demand for a card, it can go, you know, just like that overnight. Some of it could be attributed to speculators and mid-level tier financiers buying out a card or thinking that a card is worth more than it is. And that's an unfortunate aspect, but there are a lot of people in this community that are genuinely trying to help uh, other people uh, be aware of that finance uh, aspect of the game. And, you know, me and Seth talk about this a lot, you know, a card like Nourishing Shoal, or as we saw, we were just talking about this morning, Azuri, there's a lot of risk and opportunity cost when analyzing a lot of cards and going out and purchasing a card that randomly did well one time on a, you know, talking about this Gorio's Vengeance deck that we're going to talk about later on in the cast. You're taking a huge risk on a card like Nourishing Shoal where, you know, you just saw a card like Deceiver Exarch, which I personally talked about spike overnight, but then, you know, come right back down to, you know, $3 or something and, like Seth mentioned, is that really such a bad thing? The, the other aspect I wanted to talk about is that people, you know, during this time of like Modern Masters being released, a lot of people have been talking about cards not being reprinted in Modern Masters 2015. I mean, we had the full spoiler for a long time now, and we were always mentioning these cards that weren't being reprinted. And if people just took the time to read some of the articles being printed on the site or, you know, by other financiers out there that are making content saying, hey, look, 
This is not being reprinted. It's a card that's being used. You should probably pick these up now rather than later. Kind of frustrating because a lot of people get a lot of flack for no reason when we're just genuinely trying to help people keep the game affordable and keep people who like to grind these these tournaments and you know have a genuine love for the game because we all do. You know, I'm not just sitting sitting here just buying out cards and not trying to, you know, I also play the game and love the game and have loved the game for a large portion of my life. And Seth too and Richard as well and we'll actually get into that into our origin story, quote unquote, later in the cast, but the dynamic here is that people are profiting off of what I think are shortcomings of Wizards of the Coast in, and we talked about this, Sawyer, off cast, you know, printing a card like All Sun's Dawn in a, in a 9.99 pack is yeah. just an opportunity wasted to have an actual good modern reprint in that spot. What are your thoughts on that? Is that, you know, it, it's, it's, Easy to be upset and, you know, talk about card prices, but I think a lot of the people just end the conversation there and don't really go into, well, why do these cards have these value? Why do these cards spike? And um, they don't really realize that a lot of these cards, while they don't go back to the original price, uh, there is market pushback. And if people aren't buying at a specific price, they do go, you know, they start trending down to a more reasonable price. But again, like you said, not the original price, but still kind of affordable. Is a card like Nourishing Soul being $3? I mean, again, I thought it was a bad purchase just for risk, in terms of risk. But um, is, is Nourishing Soul being a $3 card really that egregious? Um, yeah, it's, it, again, it's, it's a hard balance to find, I think. And I, I obviously don't think like a car being three dollars up from one dollar or like ten cents or whatever is is that much of an issue. It's it's what's causing these spikes is what I'm like more concerned about. And okay. when the, when the market's like, it, it just feels like the market's so swingy and volatile right now. And I, again, I don't think that's good for anybody. Um, I don't think that's good for players. And I don't think it's good for speculators. Um, I do want to touch on for a second. Uh, you mentioned earlier that wizards was printing things like Comet Storm and Modern Masters and All is Dawn. And it, it's hard to feel from a player standpoint how that's not, it almost feels intentional that they're, they're, they're purposefully leaving out cards that they know they can put in. Um, and to me, I guess, I guess that, feel, that kind of rubs me the wrong way as a player. And, and it does kind of bring up these feelings of, well, I, I, I really need to be able to play this game. Um, I want to be able to grind the game, and it's it, it feels like we're being alienated because Wizards isn't putting in their effort to try to print the cards and put them at a reasonable price. Like it's not it's not like they didn't know the cards were going to go up, the other cards were going to go up, and it's not like they thought people are going to want All Is Dawn and Comet Storm. It, it's <laughs> <laughs> like I, it's, I mean, it's by design, sure. right? Like you need yeah. to have the bad cards. So yeah, no, you and, feel and good it, when you get the good cards, right? Um, and I it's get their that, choice, it's, right? Yeah, but it's, again, I, I, and I mentioned this in the article, I just feel like there's something more that could be done. Like, it's, whether it's produ- producing it on a yearly basis, um, or putting cards in, like, other supplementary products, like, there, there just has to be something else they can do. Like, I, I think increasing the frequency of reprints doesn't really help, because then your speculation cycles just become much shorter, right? If you release a set every four months, then, you know, there's this week or two week period in between where cars will spike like crazy because you'll have another three months to, 
you know, realize a profit or something, right? So the windows just become shorter and everything becomes accelerated. So I don't know that um, that would fix things. But I think you're right that the supply and distribution is controlled by wizards. So that's one part of the equation. And they do have some control over that. So they'd have to do something on that end to control uh, the, the price on the secondary market. So I do think they have some control there. But I don't know if just, you know, reprinting things more frequently will, will really fix it. Yeah, um, Seth, you know, me and you talked about, um, and, and, you know, this largely comes up when we talk about Modern Masters and if printing these cards, you know, you don't want to print so many cards where it saturates the market. But me and Sawyer were talking about, do you really think that increasing, and to go off what Richard said, increasing the supply on some of these sets would be that big of an issue? Well, I I think that increasing the supply of cards is going to help, like, if they put Snapcaster Mage in a standard legal set, the price is going to drop just because there's so many copies out there. So I think that that is a potential solution. I think that speculation would still exist, though, and people would still be playing these cycles, even with a faster schedule of reprinting. And the other thing that hasn't really come up is, I think, I wrote about this in an article a while ago, I think Wizards, in some sense, has a stake in keeping the prices of cards high, uh, like the example I used before was Damnation, which was a, a $20 card for a long time. And at a $20 card, like, what is that card good for for Wizards? Like, you could maybe use it to sell a Commander deck. You could put it in Standard, and people would be somewhat excited about it. But by not reprinting Damnation for three or four years, now it's a $55 card. And if they stick that in a Standard legal set, that's like a Thought Seize or a card like that that can sell the whole set on its own with a bunch of other junk in it. So I think Wizards, from their perspective, has some stake in keeping at least the price of some cards high. Yeah, and and Sawyer, I I know, and again, it's good to have you on the cast and with us here, and, you know, kind of having that, you know, outside perspective on this stuff. I mean, the finance aspect of the game is always going to be there, and I think it's healthy for the game, because you did mention, like, Yu-Gi-Oh!, and Richard, you did mention Hearthstone!, and those are big, those have been and are currently, well, Hearthstone anyway, uh, is is a uh, kind of a good contender uh, against Magic. And it it clearly has shown that it's popular and that people play the game. But the problem is that uh, Hearthstone does not ever, it, you're never going to have value on any Hearthstone cards other than, you know, going to a Hearthstone tournament and placing well or something like that or selling your Battle.net account. Those cards are just pixels on a screen that you can never, ever sell. And uh, Yu-Gi-Oh!, you know, cards get printed into the ground and really have no value at all, and it kind of drives away uh, a good amount of the force of the people playing the game because you just have to keep rebuying and rebuying and rebuying and rebuying cards that, get a, that end up having no value at all. And that's not really a good feeling to have either. So there is like a fine line of what the finance role is in this community, uh, it does suck that there are buyouts, and uh, I understand from people that love playing the game, you know, myself included, that you know it does happen sometimes. It's not always this frequent. I know you know you kind of wrote this article in a time where a lot of cards are shifting in price, but that that happens from time to time, and there are like seasons, quote unquote, of of when this stuff actually does end up happening. Now we do go to that two block cadence, and that might shift things up a bit, but you know, Richard did mention that people are going to adapt and uh, the finance is still going to be there. I'll bet it might get 
a little more accelerated because cards are rotating and coming in at new rates. But that just might mean that cards prices move in a different way. The, the thing about what you said, Seth, and what we talked about is the supply. I don't think like, you know, Wizards does have control over their overall supply of the set. And do you think, you know, I don't think increasing that supply on a, on a set like Modern Masters, it does, doesn't really put into the, like the LOL Chronicles, you know, argument that I keep getting. Do you know Chronicles came out in 1995? I mean, <laughs> that's a long time ago, okay? Like, you're not going to get to a point where you're releasing a Chronicle set because the, the player base was a fraction of the size that it is now. And you have cards like, yeah, like you mentioned, uh, Seth, Damnation came out uh, in Time Spiral Block. That was already, what, six six years ago? And then even before that, like a card like Oblivion Stone came out in Marodin, uh, the first Mirrodin block in, what, 2000... 2004? I mean, that's already 11 years ago. <laughs> so, uh, you know, increasing the size of these modern master sets to s- do what it originally intended to is sell product and put out cards for people to play with. And I don't think increasing the size of these sets will saturate the market uh, in a negative way. I-, I think Wizards really needs to pick and choose what they want to do. So are, are they going to have the limited aspect of uh, modern masters where you know you get an x limited uh product or you know like what we were talking about sawyer you know you have these two block cadences take that time to really aggressively reprint some of these cards to put it in people's hands yeah i think wizards like kind of pigeonhole themselves with like it's kind of like a mini reserve list right like right if you drop the price of tarmac life to five dollars tomorrow people will be insanely pissed Right, but at the same time, you want players to play with Tarmogoyf. How are you going to accomplish that? And the way Wizards has done it is, you know, we'll we'll drop the price by twenty dollars or thirty dollars or something like that, and that's our target, and we'll get supply to match that. Like I think that's their approach, and you know, they're basically just calculating how much of a price loss people can stomach when they try to reprint, right? Because if you drop the cards too much, people will think it's Chronicles again. People will be really mad, but if you don't drop it enough, then it's the original Modern Masters, prices go up. So they're kind of in a hard spot, and I think they've decided to go conservatively, right? Print a little more than the first Modern Masters, but, you know, don't half the price of my goys, just drop them by $10, $20 or whatever. So, you know, that's the conservative approach, but it doesn't really help players. You know, I'm not swimming around in Tarmogoyfs now, I can't play my <laughs> my green deck still. It's, it's still like an actual, it's like a meta-meta game, right? Like, oh, here's the best deck. But uh, here's the deck I can afford, right? So, yeah, it, it, it's still there. It didn't really solve anything right. in my mind. It made things like a little cheaper. It was like an incremental change, but it's not like, oh, you know, every modern deck is on the table now for you, right? Right? It's yeah. just, you know, okay, now I get to save ten percent of my deck. <laughs> it's it's I I'm really glad you brought up like the whole legacy argument because. The number of threads I've seen where people have like, again, I read a lot about magic because I I don't do anything else with my life, but (laughs) I've seen thread and thread again about how many people in legacy are just wanting people, like people want the reserve, like some people want the reserve list to be gone just so they have more people to play legacy with. Like they're... There are tons of people with like dual lands and a bunch of expensive legacy cards that are just like, 
Well, I, I actually would be fine if the if the reserve list was gone tomorrow, and then people are actually playing the format I love playing. And I, I, I guess I just I, I'm very much like minded with those people in that I just want to play the game. I, I want to play the game with as many people as I can. And every time I see a card at two hundred or three hundred dollars, it's another person that can't play the game. And it. You, you mentioned that, like, how mad would people be if, if Tarmogoyf dropped to $5? Like, obviously something that extreme people would be up in arms about. But, like, why can't we have $50 Tarmogoyf? Why, like, why is that a problem? And, and sure, the people that got in at, like, $200 are going to be pissed. But we're going to have, ultimately, more people playing the game and more people excited about Modern than have ever been before. Sorry, did you want to respond to that, Richard? Uh, sure, I agree. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, no, yeah, you you brought up a good a good point, Sawyer, and and ultimately everyone wants to play the game, and <clears throat> there are going to be these times where cards do fluctuate in value, and it it, it is an, a a vital part of the game, and what I think is a part of why the game has lasted this long. I mean, the game has been around for 25 years, and that's a pretty good track record of people still being able to play the game that they love, uh, even with all these price increases. And like I said, I mean, market pushback is a real thing. And if people don't want to buy $9 Nourishing Shoals, which, I mean, I don't know why you... Then don't. And the price will eventually start creeping back down and down and down and it may not go back to where it was but it'll it'll settle at a price that's still pretty reasonable and it it won't be that like egregious like you know you you said before of how you analyze uh card movement is that you're more accepting of a card going from you know under a dollar a dollar to three dollars than a card going to like fifty dollars overnight like oblivion so and i get that but people just have to be a little bit more uh, in tune with every aspect of the game and, you know, really do their homework when it comes to, you know, what card to invest in and why. And that's why a lot of these, a lot of us finance writers do what we do is to ultimately make the game more affordable, affordable for people and, or just be able to finance their own playing. From my perspective, you know, it's something for me that I do on the side and it fuels my hobby. And that's great because then I don't have to take, you know, money out of my own pocket and shell out for for the game when I can just have it pay for itself. And that requires a lot of research. And I understand that people don't want to just do that research, but a lot of it is right there on the surface for you and people, for people to read and just do a little bit of um, research it all ends up coming out in the wash and, and, and it'll all benefit us anyway because that just keeps uh, the market going along. And, you know, like you said, why can't we have $50 Tarmogoyce? We absolutely could. And that may end up bringing more people, bring, it may end up bringing more people into the game that love the game. And uh, ultimately that makes the market go forward too. So there's that like kind of relationship there uh, with finance and with people playing the game that, uh, you know, has always been part of the game since its inception. But I know this community is a lot larger than it used to be, and um, sometimes it's unfortunate that these cards do spike overnight and kind of prices people out of the game. But, I mean, 
the cards that it happens to are few and far in between. And people need to treat, not to like kind of impose anything onto how people should play the game, but I only have really one modern deck that I play that I know inside and out, and that's Affinity. And I will always play Affinity or Robots or whatever you want to call it, you know, over the course of modern. And I think that's more of a sound investment for people that want to play those type of uh, formats. I mean, for Legacy, I mean, I don't know how you do it, like uh, Richard, but I'm assuming that you have your Legacy deck and that's it, right? Is that because of the prices? Would you build more Legacy decks if, if the prices were uh, more affordable? Probably. But um, it's better in those older formats to stick with the deck, really know the deck inside and out, and from what I've heard, it gets you better results. So does anyone want to chime in on that? I Richard? Mean, I, I agree with what you said. Like, mastering one deck is better for your tournament results, but it's just not as fun, right? Like, you want to play... When you see sure. LSV playing Doomsday, whatever, Vintage, doing some crazy play, you want to go play that, right? You know, yeah. if I could play five Moxes or five Moxes, yeah, I would, right? But I can't, right? So, in, you know, one regard, it's, you're correct that having one deck and playing it well is good. But being forced to do that is something different, right? Like, right, okay. I would like to branch out to different decks. I would like to try different decks. And, you know, you can. You know, you proxy the cards and you play them. But, you know, I'd like to take them to a tournament, right? So, in some respects, you know, it's much more obvious in Legacy where the price barrier is a lot higher to switch decks. Um, you know, when you go to any Legacy tournament in an open field, you have to expect Dredge and Burn. Why? Because they're the cheapest decks. Right, yeah. people that don't play the format normally will throw these decks together and come play. So the the finance aspect of it definitely affects the game. Um, you know, it's not to say the finance aspect of it is bad or anything, but there's there's multiple things affecting the game at the same time, and not all players appreciate that. Some players just want to do the finance. Some players just want to play the game. Uh, some players just just want to hang out with their friends. Like um, so. Different people want different things, and it's hard to kind of satisfy everyone. And with, you know, Reddit and the internet, social media, uh, you see kind of these, these factions clashing a bit. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're all still Magic players, and we get along, right? It's, it's, it's just these, like, weird events will, will cause people to kind of clash heads a bit. Yeah, and, and I think that was a great statement. And like I said, I wasn't trying to impose, but I think... You know, there are those interesting dynamics going on of why people choose X deck and for X reasons. Um, Seth, we haven't heard from you. What, what, are, what are your thoughts on some of this? Well, I think what you guys are talking about with the deck switching is actually one of the best reasons to play Magic online. Like, you can see that as an example of Magic where it is very cost-effective to switch to any deck you want. Like, the spreads on cards are extremely low, and it's just very painless you might lose five percent ten percent of your deck's price to switch to another deck so i would love for paper magic to somehow be more like that but the reality is i don't know how that could ever really happen well yeah part of part of what's great about magic online is that you can literally just go up to any bot sell all of your cards lose yeah lose a few percent like you said and then just buy into any card you want and like that's you, you can't really simulate that in paper because there, it's a whole process to switch decks in paper. Like, you have to trade away cards. I mean, unless you're want, willing to just drop down, like, a wad of cash and say, buy me Abzan Control, buy me Splinter Twin, whatever, it's, it's going to be a process, and it's going to be way more painful than on Moto. 
Yep, I agree. I definitely I wish we could be more like that in paper, but it's just not not practical to have that happen, unfortunately. Why can't there be that dynamic? Is that because cars don't get released uh, as much as there there's not really like a finite supply of, of, of stuff online? It's really buy lists, right? Like, right. The spread is much higher in paper. Like on Moto, the spread is a couple percent, five percent, maybe ten percent, most. Whereas yeah. in paper, it's like thirty percent, forty percent, fifty percent. And stores don't buy my jank commons, right? Like I can't, I can't switch them in. I just give them in as bulk. Whereas on Moto, like everything is bought and sold, so it's just much more efficient. And I don't know how you could fix that in paper because in paper there has to be a storefront. Someone has yep. to sit there and sort the cards and blah, 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 right? There, you know, there's actual cost to this. So yeah, yeah, I, I think it's kind of intrinsic, and it's the advantage of being a digital uh, game. Yeah, so listeners out there, uh, I asked that question, so <laughs> Richard answered it perfectly. So just so anyone that, that knows that. I mean, yeah, there is a good dynamic, and I think that's why Moto exists. And, um, you know, maybe that's, that's why maybe it's going to start becoming more popular I mean, unfortunately, uh, it's uh, not there yet, but hopefully, you know, they realize that they're they're really sitting on a great product that that could be really great and rival a lot of, um, you know, the Hearthstones or any kind of other digital card game. So uh, any kind of final thoughts on what we talked about? Because I think it was a really good discussion and, um, you know, it's good to have you on, Sawyer, because uh, we can have your insight on some of the stuff that that also happened over the weekend. That's that's not price. Uh, that's that's not just price graphs. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Richard, Seth, anything else, or uh, do we want to just move into GP? Uh, let's talk about the GP. All right. So start us off, Seth. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So GP Charlotte um, was this past weekend. It was modern format. It was taken down by Elves, actually, Collected Company, Court of Calling Elves, with some weirdness due to a game loss in the finals, uh, thanks to a registration error. Um, But the big story of the tournament is probably the Goro's Vengeance deck, which came in fifth place. It's playing World Spine Worms and Nourishing Shoal and a bunch of crazy things, which it went 14-1 in the Swiss, actually, and uh, managed to fall in the top eight, I think, to the Ad Nauseum deck, which is probably an awkward matchup. Um, but anyway, that was the big deck to come out of the tournament with the Goro's Vengeance. Yeah. So um, did did all of you end up watching the entire event or, uh, you know, just caught glimpses of it? I watched a lot of it. Not all of it, but most of it. Yeah. Sawyer? Uh, yeah, I, I mainly watched day two and like watched the finals because my buddy Wesley C was in the top eight. But nice. So just a brief like overview of what you thought about the the top eight and and why uh, you think like certain decks are doing well right now in the in that top eight. Sawyer. Oh, sorry. Um, so yeah, I think I think a lot of what we saw this weekend was. Uh, a pretty knee-jerk reaction, I feel, to all of the unfair shenanigans that Tron and Amulet Bloom are trying to do. Um, and I, I feel like the best way to attack that is probably just playing Splinter Twin, because Splinter Twin has an insane matchup against Tron, um, and it it just doesn't die to the hate that Tron and uh, Amulet Bloom are going to die to. Um, you, see, you saw people playing... Um, 
things like uh, Jund were actually pretty popular, but they didn't they didn't have that many great finishes. Um, but the ones that the ones that were doing well had had so many fulminator mages as like a reaction. Like Brad Nelson was playing three mainboard fulminator mages to be able to attack these these unfair mana decks, and I, I think like basically people now respecting those decks has caused the format to shift back to a place where like. Now we're just trying to goldfish with our twin decks or our affinity decks and things like that. Yeah, uh, so there were actually two twin decks in the top eight, so that that is the good reaction there. Um, you know, not really a top eight full of Tron and, and Bloom like we saw. Um, so so I guess twin, like you said, being the really good choice of deck for a sea of those types of decks, actually came in second place for this weird game loss. Um issue but um we talk about collected company we have talked about collected company a lot on this cast almost as much as tarmogoyf but uh, um so does this really solidify that all these collected company decks are like a real thing and they're definite part of the modern scene right now yeah i think like i i think it's pretty hard to deny that there there are tier one decks that are playing collected company and, like, a lot of people wanted to dismiss it as, like, well, it's just worse than Birthing Pod. And, like, obviously, like, there's a reason Birthing Pod is no longer around. Um, but there, there's just so many synergies between all of, like, they're basically just playing a bunch of good mid-rangey cards. And when you can collect a company into an Eternal Witness and then get back your collected company, there, there's just so much value to be ground out by those decks that, like, the one-for-one removal from Jun just isn't up to par. Like, you you terminating my kitchen thinks is such a bad situation for you that, like, it's there, there's just so much value that I'm grinding that you're not. Yeah. So, um, we we know, or you, you, you told us that you are friends with uh, Wesley C., so uh, he landed kind of on that Splinter Twin deck in a, a very impressive run in the in the tournament. So um, did you have like uh, knowledge of why he was playing that and, and play test against him with, with that deck? Yeah, we, we had actually <laughs> spent a lot of time preparing for the invitational, which was the weekend before um, which he also played twin at. And he, he just squeaked out of not making um, not cashing at that tournament. But yeah, we'd, we'd been testing a lot of twin and, Going into this tournament, the only the only changes he decided he wanted to make to the deck were adding the mainboard Blood Moons, um, and I think he he said that was by and far the best card in the deck, <laughs> and I don't blame him. Uh, I doubt anybody played around at game one, and the number of free wins you can get just off of, like a mainboard Blood Moon is it's it's insane. Um, and I feel like a lot of the changes he made to the deck were just like reactions to Jun being popular, Tron being popular, and things like that, like. Um, he, he sent me a list of all the decks he played against throughout the day, and he played against five Jun decks, and he beat all but one of them. And that, like, that, that historically has been an, uh, like a terrible matchup for Twin, because they have all the things that beat us. They have hand rips, they have um, efficient removal that can't be countered, and it, it's just hard to combo against them. But having the mainboard Blood Moons got him so many free wins that he was just able to fight through all of the, all of the hate that they have. Yeah, um, that's a that's a good you know synopsis of why uh, people are, are are on twin, and it's a very powerful deck right now. But with the so let me ask you a question. So what do you think of all these weird like I know um, ad nauseum got into the top eight the uh, 
the Gorio's Vengeance like deck started showing up more, um, and subsequently why we're talking about <laughs> price spikes on Nourishing Shoal and stuff like that. But what do you think about all these decks now? You know, we this deck has been around for a while. I mean, why all of a sudden are people starting to really take notice? And you know, there's a lot of variance in these decks. Yeah, I think. I think exactly what you said is there, there is a lot of variance with these decks. And so when they run hot, they run hot. And I think that's why you can see a deck like, I, I, I don't think Ad Nauseam is tier one. I don't think anybody's going to argue with you that Ad Nauseam is tier one. It, it spiked a tournament. Um, the person piloting it clearly knew what he was doing. I watched, I watched him play a few times throughout the day and he, he was very skilled with the deck. I'm not, I'm not trying to bash him in any way. Um, but there, there are people that are very in tune with the decks that they play. Um, that that are just very they're very knowledgeable about how the deck functions and what the good matchups are and what the bad matchups are, and all it takes is well I just got I got a little bit lucky this tournament and I know how to play my deck really well, um, and nobody's prepared for my deck so it's it's very it's very easy to see like a breakout performance with like with a high variance deck like that or like Goria's Vengeance where nobody knows how to play against these decks because we haven't seen them. And so nobody has sideboard slots for them. Nobody has a, a lot of the half the people I was watching the stream were were turning every one of the ad nauseum players' cards around and reading every single one of them. Like they've they've never seen these cards before, and it's because the, the deck's so high variance that nobody's played it. But I mean, when you when you play it, you can you can certainly spike a tournament. Yeah, um, Seth Richard, what what did you think of the the top eight in the event? It looks very strange to me with all of these unfair decks in Modern. So this actually kind of makes me want to play Modern a bit with all these unfair decks running around. Um, it's something that Standard doesn't have. Standard doesn't have unfair decks. So the fact that so many are doing well is very intriguing to me. Um, but I don't know. I think you guys summed it up pretty well. Uh, it's interesting to see Elves. So I play Legacy, so I see all of these like Legacy decks in Modern here, and it's actually very interesting to me to see the cards that are substituted in and to see how the decks function. So I thought the results are actually pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, Seth? Well, speaking of cards that people have to read, uh, we got to at least mention the Lantern Control deck that came in 15th place. <laughs> <laughs> Ghoul, Caller, Ghoul Caller's Bell, Lantern of Insight, Codex Shredder, uh, it has three creatures, all spell skites, to protect Ensnaring Bridge, and its only way to win the game is by milling its opponent out. It's actually a straight-up mill deck. Uh, it's it's crazy. It's uh this this deck is floated around like in the budget forums and like on the extreme fringe of modern, and it's pretty exciting to see it actually have a good finish at a really big GP. Yeah, I, I mean, it's. It really is the only way, like, Mill is the only way for this deck to, to win. There was a lot of really interesting decks floating around there, this this Lantern Control deck for sure. Um, but I am just taken away by, like, how many Collected Company deck lists are starting to pop up. Like, every kind of single color combination you can even think of uh, is starting to really um, come out in, like, a lot of force. Um 19th place, Blue Black Fairies, so that's always uh, pretty cool to see. Um, you don't always see fairies show up that often. Um, so what were the big uh, takeaways from you, at least, as someone who grinds tournament like, or grinds tournaments, rather, 
uh, Sawyer from from this particular uh, event. I, I know it's a pretty it's a pretty big um, EV event. Uh, so what can we expect going forward? So I think I think the thing to take away from this is that if you want to be playing a fair deck, I feel like you have to be playing one of the Abzan or Naya company decks, um, because I feel like their their game plan against Jund is just so powerful that Jund just can't keep up, um, and Jund Jund really uh, attacks like the meta game of people trying to do these um, these twin combo things, but the fact that Twin can then beat up on all the other decks, it's, it's this very cat-and-mouse game that we're seeing, and I think the, the format's actually pretty wide open, more so than it has been in a very long time, um, which, is, which is really exciting from a player standpoint. And I, I think moving forward, people are going to keep playing Twin. Um, I, I can see Jun maybe taking out some of their Fulminator mages, maybe making... making the hate for Tron and Amulet Bloom a little less uh, prevalent. I mean, again, it's I don't know if that's um, if it's really necessary for for Tron to be hated out with like, do we really need all four of our Fulminator Mages? Do we really need like a mainboard Ghost Quarter in our three color deck? Um, and <laughs> it's <laughs> it's yeah, there's some greedy mana bases. Yeah, um, <laughs> probably not. Yeah, <laughs> there's. Uh, I think I think people were expecting Amulet Bloom and Tron to just trounce this tournament again, and so there was there was again this knee jerk reaction that I was talking about. And so moving forward, I can expect maybe Tron to maybe resurge into the format a little bit. The problem with Tron is that it just can't beat any of the hate. Um, Amulet Bloom can definitely beat the hate because the deck's just insane. But yeah, I think moving forward we'll probably see people back down a little bit on the Fulminator Mages. People will continue to play their company decks and obviously twin and affinity are still just going to be a really big part of the format. Yeah. And what do you think of, um, all these kind of combo decks coming out of the word, uh, the woodwork? Do you think, uh, do we see a specific one of them sticking around or, you know, sometimes they just spike these events and maybe there was a kind of an overreaction to, uh, everyone getting in on these combo decks. I don't, yeah, I don't think, like, I don't see Gorio's Vengeance or um, Ad Nauseam, like, continuing, continuing to be, like, a major player in the format. Um, this, this, to me, looks much more like these players really like these decks, and so they brought them. A lot of what you'll see in Modern is, hey, I own this deck, uh, there's a Grand Prix this weekend, I'm going to go play. And there's so much, like, the player base of Modern is so much, I'm just going to play whatever deck I own. And it, it, it harkens back to the conversation we were having earlier, where... It's just too expensive to switch decks, um, which is why you won't see metagame shift very dramatically. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't think people are going to start like everybody's going to play Gorio's Vengeance or Ad Nauseam. I, I think that it just happened to do well this weekend, and people are just going to keep playing the decks they've been playing. Yeah, um, yeah, that's some, that's some really good analysis. I, I've, I mean, these collected company decks seem really fun to play. Uh, if anything, um, and it seems like they're pretty well positioned right now with so much Jund. Um, I, I guess they have a kind of good game against some of these con- uh, combo decks. Maybe not because I don't think the Elves player played the Ad Nauseam player, did he? I don't think um, they, they got paired against each other. He either played, but it would have been interesting to see. Players. Yeah, I mean, he beat Twin. I mean, again, they had he had that weird game loss, so maybe it would have been a different story, but. Uh, it does seem like Collected Company has, like, an overall good matchup uh, across the field. 
yeah, there's it's 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 weird because I again I've tested a lot against the Abzan Company deck with Wesley, and we we kind of joked about how we can't wait for more people to start playing this deck because it feels like a good matchup for uh, Twin at least. Um, but they have started to respect Twin a lot more with like now they're playing like more spell skites and Kasali Prime Mages where at the beginning of the or the conception of the deck they were kind of skimping on that. Um, but I mean, really, they only have they have one spell sky and one pride mage is their only way to interact with uh, twin game one. But so I, I think I think if you want to beat these decks, you just want to be playing combo. Yeah. So maybe you know there's going to be like you said that cat and mouse game where you know more company decks come in and you know more uh, combo decks show up to kind of beat them, and then you you know add Jun and Trond and 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 all these into the mix. So. That's a very healthy metagame to me, uh, and I think um, Modern is really going into a good direction. Do Now, there was kind of some rumblings. I believe uh, uh, Reed Duke, one of the, uh, the pro players, uh, kind of at the forefront of this as uh, banning Snapcaster Mage. And um, do you think, do any of you think Modern needs any kind of bannings right now? Like significant bans? Uh, I am... Um... If any deck needs a banning, it might be Amulet Bloom, just because it breaks uh, a little bit too often. It breaks one of the rules for the format of going off on turn two or on turn three. I don't think it needs a banning based on its results, but I think it might get a banning because of that, and also because it does lead to some pretty uninteractive games where turns take a long time, almost like the old egg deck. So if anything gets the banning, I would expect it to be Summer Bloom, uh, perhaps. So go ahead, Sawyer. I was just saying I agree with uh, that Amulet Bloom is like, it's. I don't think the deck is like insanely busted. I think my biggest problem with the deck is how much it just is literally goldfishing, and you just sit there with, like, you're f 6 you're passing priority for the next 20 minutes, and you can't do anything. Like, I I remember my, mo- like, the most miserable experience I've had is, like, watching the finals of the Fate Reforged Pro Tour, where it's twin versus, twin versus Amulet Bloom, and he takes 30 minutes on one turn, and it's not because he's playing slow. He's just actually, there's actually this many decisions he has to make, and it's that uninteractive. Like, you're just going to sit here and watch your opponent, like, write down how much mana is in their pool, write down, like, how many packs they have to pay for, and it's just, it's not fun to play against. Any kind of final thoughts on the GP before we uh, wrap things up and, and start answering these fish mail? All right, Richard, you have the fish mail for the week, so um, let, let's, let's get to it. Okay, we actually have uh, two fish mails. So, um, the first fish mail is regarding a Channel Fireball article about, uh, entitled, What Broke the Magic Online Economy? And, uh, he wanted our opinions on it. And so I'll sum up the article, uh, or at least my understanding of the article. The article is actually quite long, with a lot of graphs in it. But the, the author, uh, Henry Druschel, basically is trying to answer why the pack price on Magic Online is so low. Uh, and his hypothesis is, uh, at the beginning, everyone always plays standard, so there's always a lot of standard packs uh, being paid out in daily events, and as the format goes on, less and less people play limited, so there is an excess in packs being generated, and this causes the, the price to drop, and it's compounded by the fact that usually towards the end of a format, uh, Wizards introduces either a flashback draft or Modern Masters or something like that, uh, thus further decreasing the demand um, for the the standard limited pack. And 
the, the kind of side comment thrown in here is the increase in price of redemption causes the packs the pack price to follow this dynamic more more than redemption. Um, if redemption was free, uh, we would see that the pack should kind of follow the price of the paper EV uh, set EV price. So that's the TLDR, at least as I interpreted it uh, from the article. The article is quite long, so you can have a read for yourself. Um, but uh, the fish mail was, what is our take on this? Uh, so since Seth is our finance expert and grinds moto, uh, I'll throw it to him first. Well, I agree with what he's saying. Like, I think those are definitely two factors that are causing pack prices to be so low. But I think there's also a couple more that he's missing. Um, one of those is with the switch from version 3 to version 4. Uh, just based on the forums and Twitter, I think there's been an increase in people filing for compensation because of errors in the program. And every time someone files for and gets compensation, those are just free packs that are entering into the system. Uh, they're, they're unaccounted for. So I think that that is another factor that might be missed in it. Um, but basically, yeah, what he's saying is absolutely right. Uh, we put out, we create more packs or generate more packs from constructed than are used up and limited. And this imbalance is really throwing off the economy and they need to do something to fix it or people are just not going to play constructed. Like it's not worth playing a eight man constructed event when getting first place wins you $2 or something. Sawyer, you want to chime in on this as a moto grinder? <laughs> it's uh, yeah, I, I used to pretty exclusively play in eight mans just because it's so easy to hop into one and like play for a couple hours and then be done. But I, I just don't play in eight mans anymore because it's, you used to, after you won the first round, you made your money back, and that's not the way it is anymore. And, I, yeah, I've seen a lot of complaints, and it's like some people have tied it back to, like, redemption being, like, redemption prices cost more. Um, I, I'm not sure what the, the root of the issue is, um, but it's, it definitely sucks as someone who grinds moto. <laughs> like, it, it's sad to me that, you know, someone who's queued for the Pro Tour, someone who's top-aided large tournaments, like, can't go infinite on eight-mans. Yeah, right? like, you know, what about me? You know, how am I going to like play? Right. Like, that's the biggest problem with Magic Online. Like, I don't understand why we're basically playing anti. Right. Like, we have to put some of our money up uh, to gain money back, uh, potentially. And I don't understand why we still need to do this uh, in 2015. Like, if you watch uh, any other popular game, like, how absurd would it be if you had to pay money to play a game? Right. You have people that have played thousands of games of Hearthstone thousands of games of League of Legends, thousands of games of StarCraft, and here we are, we're like, well, can I afford another $2 match? You know, like, yes. it's ridiculous, right? Like, if I want to play Magic, you know, I will spend $500 to buy a deck. I'm okay with an upfront fee, but I don't want to pay, like, 75 cents a match or something, whatever my EV is. You know, I don't want to play for eight hours and have it cost me $50, right? I would like to just grind infinitely, and the only way to do that is to have a strong pack price and be reasonably good, right? But, you know, if you kind of suck, like the average player, like they don't even suck, right? they're just average, you right. can't go infinite regardless of the pack price. So I think it's just an intrinsic flaw in Magic Online, and it's still treated like, you know, some program in 1995 versus, you know, 2015, right? People should be able to play the game as much as they want without going bankrupt. And currently it's not really like that. Well, can't you just do that in the casual rooms, though? But, you could, like, the competition is so yeah, low, exactly. <laughs> right? Like, it's it's like a totally different game, right? It's like, 
It's it's like saying you don't need to buy paper magic cards, just proxy cards and play with your friends. Right? Yes, I could play with my like three friends for over and over again, but that's not the same as playing, you know, people at my F and M or going to a Star City Games, right? So Yeah, it's it's the constructed open play rooms when you when you press competitive like you press tournament practice and you will play against the most the the most horrible tier seven decks you've ever seen. And and it's it's really sad because like that that's how I was like starting out because I didn't want to blow all my money on like eight mans and dailies and it's you just can't get any real practice in there like it's just not worth your time. It's definitely odd. I was recording the budget magic videos this week and I went from playing Jolas at one match to playing a tribal rogues deck the next match. <laughs> exactly. Like, exactly. <laughs> you just never know what is around the corner if you play in a casual room. But, yeah, so I think we all agree with the article, um, but I think we all agree that the state of Magic Online is is not where we want it to be, right? It's There's so much potential, and I just hope Wizards can pick it up. Like, they've seen Hearthstone. They, they know it's possible, right? This is not some theoretical, well, you know, it's digital, and, you know, what, what's going to happen? Like, we, we have a strong model of how to make a video game, right? So... Hopefully the Magic Online team can like incorporate that and make Magic Online kind of like a tier one experience because right now it's like a tier three or tier four experience. They really need to get their act together because uh, it doesn't take much to really make a good functioning game. And you know I don't use Moto for really that reason because you know I just don't think it's at a place where I would want to start playing it yet. And maybe that's really something they did, they need to sit down and discuss and uh, really make it viable. Um, and maybe that, you know, from everything we talked about in the podcast uh, this episode, um, it would really alleviate some of those issues that we were talking about. Yeah, and Moto is actually a very interesting place because it's a place without the reserve list. Yeah. Right? It's a place where you can give out, you know, promo cards at will. Like, you know, they have the Mox promos and, you know, player reward promos and things like that. So it's a very interesting economy. But they don't really leverage it in any way. It's kind of just sitting there and slowly dying a slow death. What's our other mail? Uh, so this is uh, in the spirit of Magic Origins. Um, let me let me see who pulled it up. Christine wants to know uh, how we started playing Magic and how we met each other. That's a good one. So what is um, our flip card? Who wants to start? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I guess I'll start. Uh, I guess my origin story is uh, I uh, I started the I started to play the game. Oh man, I think I was like I had to be like twelve years old, thirteen years old, or something like that. All I know is uh, like Mercadian masks. That kind of block was coming out, uh, and you know those packs were still around. And um, at first, go to like you know this place near my house where I was living at the time with my family and. Uh, I would just get like a random pack or something like that as something that I saw people doing at, at middle school at the time. And I kind of wanted to get into it cause it looked fun. And I guess the stigma back then was like, this game is like very like evil and demonic. And like, you know, you would see some of these cards and like some, some of these people would think like, you know, you're like a Satanist or something like that. If you played this game. So it, it kind of actually made me more intrigued about the, the, the card game. And then you figure out it's, like, really not like that at all, and it's actually really fun. And I just remember first, like, you know, I'd get these packs, and I was like, all right, like, I, I, 
you know, I'll just get these packs and then I'll never like buy packs again. And I won't have like my parents get me any, you know, I was like 13 at the time. And I was like, yeah, I'll never have like my parents get me a pack again. And then here we are like, you know, 10 plus years later. <laughs> I swear this and, you is know, the last one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, like the, the last pack back then just turned into more packs. And then, you know, I'm hooked after that. So, but it was, it was a very interesting time, uh, back then and I know you you live in New York Seth and I know you've heard of Neutral Grounds uh before and that was like really like the only place to go to like go to even like a a pre-release like back then so it was like a very interesting time it was really awesome time back then uh like Mike Flores was like a, a New York native and he was like just starting out and stuff like that so uh it, it's been a long time and um it was just really awesome to be a part of that and like play at like the the uh, cafeteria room tables like in our own little corner, <laughs> like people not knowing what the hell is going on. <laughs> so I guess that's my origin story. I mean, guess fast forward to now, uh, you know, making content for the community and really being a part of the community. It's like totally evolved. Uh, the game has totally evolved since I, I first started playing when I was like you know, a young little kid and uh, all the older kids were like really into it. And like, I'm sure I've gotten my fair share of awful trades, but you know, I couldn't even remember. I couldn't even tell you now uh, back then, like some of the cards I probably traded, <laughs> which would have been <laughs> really uh, egregious to me now. So Seth. Well, for me, I'm, I'm actually kind of a late comer to the magic scene. Uh, I started playing, let's see about, uh, Shadowmoor, the original Ravnica block, sometime in there. Uh, and basically, back then, I was very much into music. I played in bands, and that was kind of my thing. But I had this roommate who was a little nerdy and a little different. So I would have all my band friends come over, and we would, you know, be playing music and stuff. And he would be having his friends over, and they would be playing Magic. And I started seeing this game, and I'd always loved poker. I'd always loved strategy games. But And it looked like a really interesting and cool game. It had a lot of strategy elements. It had some poker feel to it. But I was afraid to actually try to play because I didn't know what my band friends would think about me playing Magic. <laughs> and my roommate, who I was, we were like best friends, even though we were kind of the odd couple, he was always afraid to ask me to play because he thought that I thought it was too nerdy and I wouldn't ever want to play. So this went on for almost a whole year like, I wanted to play, but didn't know how to, like, actually step into it. He wanted to ask me to play, but was afraid to do it. Finally, I just said, why don't you teach me this game? And that was maybe 2008. And as soon as I played it, I loved it. Uh, the first draft I did was Shadowmoor. Uh, I remember buying the original, like, Ravnica booster boxes and Zendikar. And as soon as I started doing it, it was just, like, full force forward. And I stopped caring what other people thought about me playing Magic. My band friends would come over, and I'd be in the middle of casting my uh, uh, Eon Storm in my janky, like, mirrored and combo deck. And I'd be like, hang <laughs> on, guys, I'll be with you in a minute. Uh, i got to finish up this game real quick. So I kind of backdoored my way into the game pretty late. but And since then, uh, it's become a major part of my life, as you guys know. Now I create content. I got interested in the financial aspect of it, but... I can honestly say I was not one of those people that played with the kid and just, like, uh, always did it. I came into it much later in uh, life. Yeah, that's, 
I can I can really attest to some of that too. Like it was definitely not like a mainstream thing back then <laughs> at all. And uh, I, I would definitely remember like the group of us that did play Magic would be in like our own like alienated table, like in the middle of the, like in, in the far corner of the cafeteria. And uh, it, it was just funny how like over time like so many more people ended up starting to play. Um, it's really uh really been awesome, a, an awesome journey. Uh, Richard, what's your uh, origin story? Yeah, you guys are like little kids. Like I started <laughs> playing fourth edition, so I actually looked at this up. Nineteen ninety-five. I don't think Sir was even born yet. <laughs> nope. But uh, I was uh, I was seven years old. <laughs> I think you're not that much younger than I, I was. Like I, I don't know, probably like ten, around ten years old, twelve years old, something like that, and. Uh, I actually started playing another card game, uh, Overpower, which is a Marvel card game. So back then, everyone was into Marvel, so Spider-Man, X-Men, whatever, and they had a card game, and it's called Marvel Overpower, and we played that. And then one day, someone bought, like, a Magic Booster Pack or something, a, a starter set, one of those, like, 60-card decks, and we all just started playing Magic. And uh, it was very primitive back then, you know, we didn't... The internet didn't really exist. We all played like Duke Nukem 3D and Warcraft 2 on our modems. So there was no magic theory. We had 60 card decks with 20 lands with, you know, five and six converted mana cost cards. Sarah Angel was the bomb. We, we played more probably what you would think of as EDH, whereas we had a 60 card deck, but we just played in a group of like six to eight people. and We sat around doing nothing and then we just alpha striked in one turn and that was it. And um, so that's how we started playing Magic, and we were too young to understand anything, so now when I read back, and, you know, there's like, oh, you know, you're, you're evil, and all these demons and stuff, but, like, we were just kids, and we didn't, we didn't get any of that. It was, like, way over our heads. Our parents didn't care, so, so that, that was fine. Um, played on and off again um, throughout school, uh, and mostly it comes up as, hey, you know, I used to play Magic, and I have these old cards you want to play. And, you know, that got me back in the game around Ravnica time, and then again around Innistrad. And I've been playing since Innistrad, and um, now I play mostly Legacy because I like playing with the same cards I played with as a kid. So I will play white-bordered lands, I will play my revised lands, and my revised Swords to Plowshares because it was literally the same card I played with when I was 10 years old. Um, So... So that's my origin story, uh, fourth edition. So a really long time ago. Unfortunately, I was a dumb kid. I didn't save up my dual lands. I didn't save up. Uh, I didn't save up any of the power. You know, back then it was like, oh my god, a mox, eighteen dollars. Why would I want this? Right? Give me a shiv and dragon. Right? I remember one of our friends. There was the card, uh, Hammer of Bogarden, I think. Uh, it was like a stronghold card or something. It was like some terrible burn card with buyback, but it was twenty dollars, and he bought it. And we're like, oh my god, you're insane. This was like $20 to like a 10-year-old kid. That was like four birthdays or something saved up <laughs> on a magic card. And it was just the end of the world. And then now here I am buying like $200 dual lands. <laughs> so <laughs> magic has come a tr- long way. Yeah, it seems to be the trend with like all you, all the older players. Like, oh, I never like really knew those cards would be good. Just like kind of like 
you hear those stories of like, oh, I never knew like Action Hero Comic One would be like two million dollars. You're just a kid, right? You're just playing with your yeah. stuff. You're like throwing them all over the place. You like spill some juice on it, like whatever. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like no one cares. Yeah. No one knew. Yeah. Right? You know, I go to my parents all the time. I'm like, you really never thought like the first Superman comic would ever be like worth something one day? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and I bet like. I bet, like, maybe our kids, like, like later down the line would be like, dude, you never thought, like, an underground sea would be, like, $600? Like, $700? It'd be more I like, really you never save not... your Modern Masters 2015 wrappers? Those were, like, collector <laughs> items, right? It, it was, like, literally that, right? It's, like, yeah. some piece of garbage that you didn't know. You're like, I don't know. It's just the same as everything else. You just throw it away. And then, like, 20 dude. years later, apparently it's worth a lot, right? And that's why yeah. it's worth a lot because everyone threw theirs away, right? You would be surprised, like how many, like and like over the time that I played the game, like dude, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know like some of the, uh, the abilities. Like I thought Trample was like you, you couldn't even like block the card or something like that. Like yeah. it was just crazy, like how like back then, like I remember going to a store like in the middle of riding my bike to like the like getting all the loose change I could possibly find and like saving up a couple dollars and like riding my bike into the middle of town and getting that one um. Oh my god, like the prophecy intro pack with like Avatar of Might in there. And I thought it was like the hottest shit because I had like Avatar of Might and it was like 88 trample and like I was like, "Oh, I'm going to go to the I'm going to go to uh you know, I'm going to really wreck kids like when I play this like when I go to uh school tomorrow at the at the tables." <laughs> and like you know, later on you realize Avatar of Might's like an awful card. <laughs> What was I thinking, dude? I thought like that was like the best card ever. All right, let's hear from the eighteen-year-old Sawyer. Yeah, when did you start Sawyer. playing Innistrad? No, oh god, no! I have I Theros. Have, <laughs> I, you you were gonna laugh. I literally started playing at Born of the Gods. Um, oh my it, god, dude! Yeah, you, I, you're a good player, man. Have you I only have started so. playing that recently? Yeah. yeah. I, I yeah, like wow. I said, I don't do anything but magic. Um. <laughs> Yeah, around, like, I think my first pre-release was Born of the Gods, um, and, like, prior to that, like, I had played, like, one game with my brother back in, like, 2010, when, or, no, it was 2012, we had played one game, and, like, because I, I remember getting an intro pack with, like, Sphinx of Joir Isle in it, I still have that card, it's, like, my favorite card, um, and we, we, like, we played, like, a couple games, and then we set it down, and we never looked at it for another, like, two or three years, and then I came back to it, um, uh, just last year at Born of the Gods, um, and my my first deck was Simic Evolve. Um, my I was playing like Elusive Crassus and Cloudfin Raptor, and uh, what was the um, Master Biomancer? That card was insane. Um, but yeah, that was I, I basically just like had seen people playing it at school, and um, I, I had like. I had had the experience with my brother a couple years back and like, I'm like, ah, I guess I can like try it again. And once I started going to like F and M's at my local card shop, it like, it, it just, I, I got sucked into it. And then I was like, Oh, I, w- I want to build a tier one deck. And so I started with mono blue and I'm like, well now I can't beat Supreme verdict. And so I started casting Supreme verdict and then now I'm a dirty control player. And yeah, it's, <laughs> that's how they started. That's Supreme exactly, Verdict yeah. was your first Supreme Verdict was, I realized, yeah, exactly. Realizing how busted Supreme Verdict was now that we have crappy cards like Crux of Fate, like, oh my God. It's, yeah, it's, I spent, I spent like that whole, ter- that whole summer last year, like grinding tournaments with my friends. And, uh, I, I basically just haven't looked back. I've just been spending all my time trying to read everything I can about the game and basically just putting all my time into it. So. 
Yeah, that's that's impressive. I mean, that, that was not even that long ago, Born of the Gods, and you're you're doing so well. So I mean, I guess we're we're talking to like one of the new prodigies of the game. Oh yeah, right here on the, right right here on this cast. So if you make it big, man, you you remember that you. I'll remember. Your first yeah. Cast. Yeah. <laughs> so no, that was a really good question. I mean, it's really good to reminisce on stuff like that, and like again, like you know, eight eight tramples were really awesome back then. Dude, force oh, of nature. You got to pay four mana every turn yeah. to prevent it from killing you. Dude, I remember, <laughs> the original like, 8-8 trample. I don't, I don't know if you guys know that, like, uh, Rocks from, like, Nemesis. I, I don't even think that was, like, his first printing. Was it Rocks? The 3-3 um, three, three flying? No, it's, like, a 5-5 five, five for 6, and it can, it can be regenerated. I think it has, like, shrouded or it can be regenerated, and it could deal as damage at those, as though it wasn't blocked. And I always remember, remember thinking, like, it just couldn't be blocked, period. So, like, I thought it was, like, the most badass card was, like, a six-mana 5-5, five, five, and basically you just deal five damage every turn, and they can't kill it. So I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, like, just back then you didn't know what the cards actually do. Now you look back and, like, it's actually it's actually kind of a decent card still. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, that was a really good question. Uh, who was that from, uh, Christine? That was from Christine. Christine, well, thank you very much for the... Uh, the fish mail. That was a good one. And in the spirit of uh, Origins coming up uh, soon. Um, so that that wraps up the uh, fish mail, right? Yep. All right. So we, we nailed it. Um, I think that uh, I think that does it for this episode. We covered a lot. It was kind of a long one. But um, Sawyer, thanks for coming on with us. Uh, it was good to uh, talk about uh, the things that you talk about in the article. It was good to have your insight on... Uh, you know, GP Charlotte just being a tournament grinder and having your insight on, you know, the finance aspect of the game. Because, um, like we talked about, a lot of people play the game for a lot of different reasons. So thanks for being on the cast. Yeah, I really and, appreciate uh, you guys having me. Hopefully that uh, dispels a lot of the controversy over Yeah, that. yeah, hopefully we're able to clear uh, some of yeah. the air. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, guys, it was, it was a great cast. Thanks, uh, everyone, for coming on. Richard, Seth. That was a good cast. Um, let's do it again next week, right? Yeah. Yep. Next week will be and origin spoilers. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, and we don't want to get too far into it. So hopefully, those uh, flip walkers are. Uh, we'll we'll talk about this next week, Seth. Uh, oh God, the, the uh, we, uh, we had uh, some some words on Twitter over some of these uh, some of these cards. <laughs> um. All right, so that'll wrap things up for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next week.